0: John chapter 2 today, continuing this series, so I'll give you a moment to get back and get to your seat and open your Bible to John chapter 2. We'll take a look at that. Hey, so let me just give a uh, kind of a wrap-up word on our missing trailer last week. Uh, I just wanted to, uh, just for a second, just, I'm kind of amazed. I wanted to commend uh, the staff, uh, the board, you as a congregation, that that uh, though uh, a trailer that had everything that we use except for these metal chairs, it was gone. And yet we had church two hours after that. Um, this week was was really not a, a huge problem. A couple little, you know, hiccups to, to be ready for this morning, but pretty easy to get ready for this morning. And I just uh, commend you. I appreciate that, that uh, that was not like... Uh, a big stifling thing for us at the church to just move on. It was kind of like your attitude was, eh, all right, well, let's do church next week, and we did, so I appreciate that, and uh, and we're rolling, the insurance is rolling, um, all that stuff's covered, and uh, it'll be just fine. In fact, there's uh, several things we would not use in the building uh, when we move in, and I guess we're just going to get a check for those, and we'll do something, we'll do something, I'll buy you all lunch, so, all right, all right, oh, off the dollar menu, Oh. Hey, John chapter 2, let's take a look at this. We're walking through this series in the book of John, and we're really going almost verse by verse through this uh, gospel that John writes, and what we said was Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very interested somewhat in chronology. They're thinking of their target audience and how they're writing. John doesn't care a whole lot about that. He just wants you to know that Jesus is the Son of God, and he's going to drive that point home over and over and over, Uh, and you also will notice, as you will this week, that chronology doesn't matter a whole lot to John. As we read the story this week, you might think in the other gospels, wait, doesn't that happen like, towards the end. Um, and you'll see in John, he just throws it in here. He wants you to know it right at this point. That's part of his flow. It works quite fine for him. And so uh, we're continuing on. We learn that Jesus indeed was God. John declares that from the very beginning of his gospel. We find later that he had followers. We actually found in the gospels that, I mean, these followers, like, they were teenagers that followed him. I mean, parents of teens, like your kids, we're the disciples, these closer. that's kind of shocking. We learned last week that, that Jesus even employed the miracles and the supernatural into revealing himself as well. And so we're going to continue this week uh, with this passage. As I read it, if you've hung around the church world a while, it might be a very familiar passage to you. And it might be the passage that the, the key thing that resonates with you over the years is that this is a, like a description of righteous anger. Um, And I would say, yes, it is. But there's much more to this passage that we're going to see as we read and as we take a look at this. All right, so John chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 13, and let's read. (coughs) Starting in verse 13 says this. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and he chased them out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle, scattered the money changers, coins on the floor, and he turned over their tables. Then, going over to the people who sold doves, he said, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scripture, passion for God's house, will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. What, they exclaimed, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in just three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scripture and what Jesus had said. Hey, this morning, as we jump into this, can I just invite you or implore you to find yourself in a character in this story this morning? Um, Or maybe you used to see times in your life where you might have fit into different characters. Um, But we're going to see how Jesus interacts differently with these folks uh, in this story this morning. And I believe, and the invitation is going to be there at the end, that the key focus, the overall thing of this passage, is that Jesus is saying, look, I pave a way for you to come to the Father. That's what he's saying. And so we're going to take a look at this, but at the very end, we're going to enjoy communion together this morning. And it may be this morning that, like, you need to walk that path back to God. It, like, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It just means, you know, you, you maybe have turned this into a bit of religiosity, and that true, like, passion and walk with God has been departed a bit. And so I just want to invite you this morning. Why not make a a refocus and a recommitment towards that journey and that, that walk with God. So we'll have communion together, which symbolizes this in, in a little while. So the, uh, Jesus and his disciples, they're coming in uh, to Jerusalem now, and uh, this is after last week's story, seemingly, here. And they're coming from Galilee, which is actually to the north, so they're coming to the south. Uh, but Jerusalem was up on a hill, so it's always described as going up to Jerusalem every time uh, it's said in there. So that's why it reads that way. This is one of three three, uh, passages about the Passover celebrations. So there's three different Passovers that John refers to in his gospel, and so this is one of those. And he says it's the Jewish Passover. Why is that important? Because remember, John's not Jewish, and he's writing to an audience that needs to know about Jewish customs. They may not know. So if I was writing something about baseball to baseball fans, I might write in a different way than if I was writing at baseball to people that had no clue about that. Uh, So he's doing that. He says Jewish Passover, just so his reader understands who this target audience of the Passover is all about. Once a year, every young Jewish man was employed to go to Jerusalem for a pilgrimage. Like they had to go there and to visit Jerusalem to worship. And they were required by the law to do this. Like, I can't even quite think of something in our culture that is required that way that you would do every year, Uh, but this was required at this point in time for them to go. And so we also hear that this is called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So if you're reading your translations and it says Unleavened Bread or the Festival of the Unleavened Bread, same thing here. And you remember what unleavened bread means? You just, you take the leveling, 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 is that a word? the rising agent, out of that. Um, So take the yeast out, and that that carried into some Old Testament traditions and all the way back to the, the Passover at the end of the ten plagues. And we find also in the Old Testament, though, that yeast actually represented sin. So this festival was also an atonement for sin, a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin as well. That all was represented and symbolized in this Passover. And so they would go to Jerusalem for this. Now, the city would begin preparations well ahead. So they had to fix bridges and roads and all kinds of stuff because people were going to come. Tens of thousands of people were going to come, right? We just had Marketplace, right? Or it's going on right now. Is it over? No, it's not over. So it's still going on uh, right now. And you know, if you live down on High Point, you get a little bit of craziness for that period of time. Now, picture as many as 250,000 people descending on Jerusalem And that's what's going on here. And they've come to worship. Two things that are part of their worship when they come. One, they need to pay their temple tax. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that every person that had turned 20 years old and older had to pay their tax. And so Jesus and Peter, we get one story that they needed to pay their tax. One of the reasons we viewed the disciples as much younger than 20 years old but that was part of the celebration, uh, part of the Passover. It was a half shekel they had to pay, which for most people was about two days wage that we, you'd be paying. So your Thursday and Friday of work is what you would be paying in the temple. The other thing was to bring sacrifice. And so you would bring some type of sacrifice uh, down to the marketplace, or excuse me, not the marketplace, to the temple, and, and you would sacrifice that As well, These are the two parts. If you were a little bit poor, you might bring a dove. That was allowed in the scriptures and in the law. But if you have normal income, you would bring a lamb. uh, And then these would be used for sacrifice. Take a look at verse 14. This sets what's going on in our story. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at the tables exchanging foreign money. Now, uh, the first thought would be maybe to think... Well, we should never sell anything in the church, like John back there is selling you know pork shoulders back there, and I'm about to go flip that table over and go crazy on him. You know? But there's something more to this passage. You see, I just told you that it was required under the law that they would come to the temple with a sacrifice. Now think about the journey that many of them would have to make, and it was not conducive always for people to bring a lamb from such a far distance away, and so it was very common that there would be some form of marketplace set up specifically for this, so people could come and they could buy something to carry and sacrifice. In fact, it's where there's a shift in the Old Testament into the New Uh, which carries out for us today that it's very agricultural and very animal-oriented in the Old Testament. Your value came from your land and how many cattle you had and whatnot. And we're starting to see that shift into more of a monetary um, importance. And so the people would sacrifice of their money to buy uh, the animal. That was commonplace. That would happen. I don't think Jesus had a problem with that part of it. We also just learned that you would need to bring some type of temple tax. Did you know this, though? You couldn't use any coin that had the face of any Roman official on it for the temple tax. You needed to change that into temple money. And so, it would make sense that you would have money changers that were there that would transition your money just like you would if you went to another country. That's kind of the setting there. So, what's the problem, then? If those were commonplace, what does Jesus— and get all in an uproar about. Well, let's take a look at this because I think there's two specific things that Jesus is really upset about, though other commentators might even add to it. But two things let's take a look at. And first, to, to look at the first one, let's take a look a little bit at this layout. Take a look at the, the temple here. This is the, the first picture of the temple. And you will see in this picture, I mean, this is a massive, massive building. So if you have a picture kind of like the uh, the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, or if you kind of remember all of your Ark theology from Indiana Jones, um, it's actually a little bit more grand than that. This is 30 stories tall that was built here. And you can see, I mean, it's, it's prominent white with gold around the top. And it was built to look like a crown from a distance as you were traveling into Jerusalem. Massive, massive structure here. That's what was built. Now, if you pan back and you see a little bit uh, further in this second image, you'll see uh, this courtyard, if you can kind of make out the courtyard closest to that large 30-story structure, that was actually the court of the Gentile, or excuse me, the Georgia of the Israelites, which was for all the Israelite men to come and worship. Right near the holiest of places in their eyes, that's where the men would come and gather. Then right outside of that, you'll see kind of another courtyard, and that's where the women would come and they would gather uh, as well. Now, this was just cultural as far as the men and women. We don't hold to anything where, you know, men, you got to worship here. Women, you got to worship farther out uh, than that. This was a cultural thing that carried over there. Now, look a little further out, and you'll see kind of a faint line around uh, the outside of that middle structure there. A faint line, it looks like a short wall uh, kind of. Uh, do you see it there? Do you pretend you see it? Just act like you see it there. Um, there's a thin wall. It's, a, it's about a two foot got good good. good. Uh, about a two-foot high wall that would go around this outer area. That would mark the line where the Gentiles could not go past. So there was this area where the Jewish men and women could worship God, and then further out was a place where the Gentiles were allowed to go, and they couldn't go past this line. In fact, they weren't called Gentiles there. Like if you were at the temple and you were to read the inscription, they were called foreigners. That's what the inscription would say. In fact, if you look at this next slide, this slide three, uh, there was a stone actually found in 1871 that actually had the description carved in it. And the description, though very long there, I won't read the whole thing, basically says, you who are not us, pass and you'll die. That's, that's basically the gist of what's being said there. So the Gentiles had an area they had to worship as well. You can come and worship God as long as you stay at this line. That was just common practice that would go on there. In fact, uh, very interesting, if you know this passage, maybe it just popped into your head. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14, this has like new meaning if you hadn't thought about it in terms of this temple layout here. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14, it says, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when... In his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility. Some of your translations say the dividing wall that separated us. This direct connection, really, with what's going on in the temple, that Jesus even breaks that down there. So what was the problem? Uh, In the court of the Gentiles, guess where they decided to set up this marketplace? Right in the court of the Gentiles. So all of these, this area where the Gentiles could come and worship now, this was overrun by stalls for animals, by tables, um, by this, everything that would happen in a marketplace. Now, it, you can even go out to the farmer's mart here in town, right? Which, if you think farmer's mart, you're going to go out and you get your vegetables, get some of your fruits and things, you know, but you can get cotton candy there. You can get corn dogs at the farmer's, you can get anything. So you can imagine everything was out there now set up in the Gentile Marketplace. Where would the Gentiles worship? Outside of that, you had now all of the Jewish folks that had come to buy their animals or to change their money as well, are out there as well. Can you imagine the chaos that was going on? And this is the place that the Gentiles were given to worship. Now keep in mind, the Gentiles were not required by the law to come and to worship, they wanted to come worship, they were seeking God. They wanted to learn more about God. They wanted to come and offer. They weren't even required to come and offer sacrifice the way the Jewish people were. But they wanted to be there. And yet the marketplace was set up right there. Guess who's in charge of all this? It's the religious leaders of the day that are in charge of this. That are allowing this. It's as if the religious leaders are saying this. The heck with you, Gentiles, foreigners. We don't really care what happens out there. Keep that inner area good and clean for us to worship, the Jewish men and the Jewish women. But the Gentiles, you know, whatever. That was the setup, kind of dictated that, and that's where the marketplace was going on. So here's one point that, that angers Jesus when he walks and he sees all of this going in on in what is called an area of worship. Here's a key point that we need to remember in this passage, though I think you can find this throughout other passages as well. Jesus doesn't like anything that gets in the way of people seeking God. Like anything that would get in the way of somebody seeking God, Jesus is not like that. It angers him. It upsets him. If we would actually stifle somebody from searching and seeking God. Do you know that there's people out there right now they're seeking God, yet they're asking questions that sound like they completely disagree with what you believe. yet they're seeking God. And sometimes what Jesus is saying is, let's just give those people a little bit of time to seek God, to connect with God, and trust that God is an amazing change agent who transforms people, their thinking, their behavior, their attitudes, everything. Jesus doesn't like anything getting in the way. There's this other passage that Jesus is really direct and blunt with the religious leaders. He says, you travel over land and sea to find one convert— And when you do, you make them twice the sons of hell that you are. That's pretty strong. And Jesus is saying here, why do you get in the way of somebody seeking and being in relationship with God? In that passage, he's specifically talking about these made-up laws added on to the law of the Old Testament and the legalism that went along with that. You know, the same is true today. What God really wants, what Christ loves, is your search of him you seeking him, you are being on that journey to continue to learn more about him. Now, if you've been on that journey 15 years and you're like down here, like on immature Christian stage, I would dare say you you probably not listen too strong to the voice that God has given. But I know many of you, you're just beginning that. Like you've just come back into the church world or it's brand new, you've never been in it. And you're just learning new things about God. And God is thrilled with that. Anytime we would search and seek to learn more about God. And he doesn't tolerate people getting in the way of people searching and seeking God. Notice who is the ones that are seeking. Uh, in their land, it was the foreigners, the Gentiles. It would, basically, they would say, these are people that are not like us. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm, I divide that while I break that, that down. That all can come. All can come and serve. Now here's the danger. I think if you think practically, here's our worry, our concern, is that if we say this, if we say like everybody come, whether you, I mean whether you're like right on board with what we believe or not, uh, we want you to come and seek and learn about God. Here's what we get nervous about. Well, that means we've watered down our gospel entirely, and we don't stand strong on concrete biblical principles anymore. Can I I just tell you, folks, throw that fear right out the window. It doesn't mean that. We're still grounded in God's Word. We still believe what God's Word is, is the way we would live our lives and follow. But you know what? We're not going to be an obstacle ever to people coming and seeking God. It's as if maybe sometimes, and I dare say I've fallen into this trap in my life. As people come, I think first I need to be the change agent in their life. I need to help them understand how things need to change and what they need to do different. And here what we're learning is, Jesus said, no, let's first connect with God. And let's trust the transforming power of the Holy Spirit to work in people's life, to challenge people, and to change people. And then if God wants to use us in that, he'll probably let us know. And then we'll step up and be a part of it. So this anger is Jesus. He's frustrated. Here's the second thing. It's in the way that they conducted their business here. Now, you might have put two and two together on this uh, already, but let's just walk through it to be sure. They had to bring an animal without blemish, right? Like, you couldn't just go and say, you know, I've got like a one-eyed, three-legged, you know, goat here, and I'm just going to bring them over, and uh, uh, we'll just, you know, we'll just use this goat— uh, because I don't really need this This go. This doesn't really help me back on the farm or anything. That's not how it worked. You brought your best, your best. In fact, it's sometimes a misunderstanding in the Old Testament that without blemish meant like, like this was a perfect, perfect animal, like you could never find one little fault in the skin or hair or whatever. Um, but it leans more towards the understanding of your best, the absolute best you have to offer. That's what you're supposed to bring. Instead of just saying, well, you know, I don't really need this goat. I guess I'll bring that. I don't really need this extra dove. I'll bring that. I don't really need this, you know, whatever. In fact, some of us today, like, that's how we serve God. We, you know, we say, well, I've got this little bit of this time left over. I guess I could go and I guess I could go pack a few food bags and do something. Or financially, you know, I, I got a couple bucks, so I don't really need it. I'll give it to Jesus, you know. Or uh, I've got that tube TV with a VCR attached to it in the basement. I don't, really, I don't really need that. Let's give it to the church. Please don't, okay? Like, please don't. We'll, we'll just go on without the TV if that's the case. Because the mugs are heavy, okay? So they had to bring this type of, of, of animal for sacrifice. Here's the problem. Here's what would go on is that the greatest moneymaker for the temple, the greatest fundraiser over the course of the year for the temple... Was this Passover festival? And it happened uh, most often in this marketplace because it was the temple and the high priest himself that oversaw and ran this marketplace here. And so you could see the, the problem that would happen. If what we already know about the tax-collecting culture in, in the Gospels, where the tax collectors were the villains because there was no regulation for how much they could charge over and make on themselves, you can imagine what went over on in the, uh, the marketplace as well here. Animals that were brought were told, no, that's not good enough. That's not without blemish. You're going to have to go buy one of the temple animals instead. Or those who came without animals but came with money to buy and where animals were sold at such incredibly high prices. And then the temple exchange, the, the taxes, it was commonplace that the exchange was up to 50% more. So if you brought your $2 to exchange, you're going to be paying $3 to get it done. And that's a pretty high price. If you go to other countries and you transfer your money, you'd understand you're probably not going back to that country, Right? That's what was going on. In fact, it said that there was $20 million found just in the outer coffers of the temple when it was ransacked in the uh, just in, uh, 30 years after we're reading about this here. $20 million in the outer coffers. That's a lot of money. Much of it came from this practice. And can I just tell you key point number two here? Jesus hates when people use worship to make money. Hates it. And we find here that Jesus is looking. And now we have already got the, the Gentiles being excluded from worship. Their places being taken over and ransacked. And now what you find is that these Jewish folks are just being gouged financially. Most of this would hit the, the poorer people even harder. They might have brought all they had to bring. And every dollar was now given here to make sacrifice. And this angers Jesus. It's frustrated with this. I believe it does today. Can I just tell you that though I'm not, I'm not a big church critiquer, I don't really feel there's a lot of value in it. In fact, there's a danger zone when we walk into a church and we walk away and go, well, I don't know about the music they did this morning. Or, you know, the pastor was good, but that one thing he said, was like there's not a lot of value in that. I think that frustrates you. But can I just tell you that this practice of using worship, using worshipful emotion, to Ever draw ourselves to offerings and to money or that that Jesus hates it today, just the same hates it the, the, the same today, so we find now, as we go into this next verse, he is just flat out ticked angry, and here 's what we read in verse verse fifteen: Jesus made a whip with some ropes and chased them out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle and scattered the money changers, coins over the floor, and turned over their table. Jerome, uh, in, uh, in church history, says, The very countenance of Jesus made the whip unnecessary. And meaning, Jerome is describing it as Jesus is so angry in his face that when he walked in, they knew he meant business. Now, that's just Jerome's interpretation. The Bible doesn't say that. But you can see, I mean, he is angry, angry here. At this. Do you know what Jesus is angry about? He is angry about people not being able to come worship the Father. The obstacles being put in their path to worship God. Verse 16 continues Then going over to the people who sold Dove, he seems to be a little nicer to them here. He told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my Father's house into a marketplace. Uh, the word, the, the most literal translation, the English tr- uh, standard version says, my father's house, a house of trade. House of trade. Uh, trade equals merchandise. Um, and the Greek word there is emporium. Um, and that comes with the, the English word. Do you know what it is? Emporium uh, as well. Yep. You guessed it. Yeah, which means basically a shopping mall, right? So he's saying, and here's the message translation that picks this up, stampeding the sheep and cattle, upending the tables of the loan sharks, spilling coins left and right. He told the dove merchants, get your things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a shopping mall. That's all it was to them. Can you see the value of the service of me saying, I'm going to serve people that want to worship God. I'm going to provide animals for them. I'm going to love them and serve them, and you know, I'll, I'll just... I'll, I'll give it to them at the price that's, that's fair and honest. That's a valuable service. They come and the law says they have to change their money from Romans with an image on it. And I'm going to offer a very valuable service to exchange their money over. Just like straight across exchange. So they can go and they can worship God the way the law requires. And yet that valuable service is hijacked by robbers who gouge the people who take advantage, who eliminate some altogether from being able to worship God, period. Can you understand why Jesus is so angry here, so mad? Can you understand now why we're going to give John a pass on selling pork shoulders in the back? Um, Because he's selling them for a pretty good price, so we're good. Because it's not just about what's happening there in the sale of animals or the exchange of money that had to happen, but it's his heart to this thievery that eliminates people from being able to worship God. Do you know that in the Jewish custom, there was a phrase? It's simple. You might have grown up hearing this, even though you didn't know where it came from. Don't worship God angry. You ever heard that? Don't worship God angry. Meaning, get yourself right, get yourself calmed down, get yourself under control, then go before God. Can you imagine if you had showed up into Jerusalem to worship God and you had been gouged and abused to the level that we just read about, how do you go before God and not worship angry? Now that's just a saying um, there, so don't walk out of here feeling like if you're angry, you can't go talk to God. I'd say take your anger immediately to God and talk, probably the best time to go talk to God uh, when, when you're angry. And so this is what's happening And now, Jesus, picture it. I mean, he makes the whip, and he is driving people out. I mean, just driving. He's flipping tables and screaming and whipping people. Whipping people. Have you ever whipped somebody? I mean, or maybe whipped at somebody? I mean, that's what he's doing here. Just going crazy on people. And then what do we get? This passage is a great little passage. Take a look at it in in John chapter 2, 15 and 16. Or excuse me, Farther down, it's verse 17. It says the disciples, they all of a sudden remember a verse. They remember some scripture. That the scripture says, passion for your house has consumed me. Like, uh, it dawned on them as they're watching Jesus go crazy on people. Like, this this phrase from the book of Psalm, chapter 69, verse 9, pops into their head. And they say, hey, didn't the scriptures, like, pre- isn't this, like, pre- predicted? That... About the Savior, about the Messiah, that the house of the Lord would consume me, and here is Jesus going crazy defending the house of the Lord and what he did here. Passion, you know, the word is zeal. Uh, we don't use the word zeal a lot, right? I mean, we talk about like our, our athletes and and you know people that are, are doing some you know some activity. We'll say, man, they really do it with passion. They have a passion for that. Rarely do we say zeal, but that's the word here. And the Greek word for zeal means fire. I mean, fire. We say, I mean, they're on fire. That's what's happening here. It's, it's like if you mess with the Father's house, it brings fire from Jesus, is what he's saying. This frustration and this anger here. Sometimes we just say, hey, um, isn't the church just God's people? It's not really a building, right? It's not really chairs. It's not a trailer. It's not any of that. It's just people. It's just people. Well, I understand what you're getting at, and I think you're right. People coming together and worshiping, but Jesus constantly defends the church, the place of worship as well. The place of worship he defends, and that's what he's doing here. He's defending his father's house to remain a place that people can come and they can worship God. Listen, if you came to this church— for the next three months. And you honestly never felt there was any avenue to worship God here. Like we, we never ushered you in that way. We never did anything. In fact, on the flip side, we seem to keep creating obstacles where no worship could happen. You should be out of here in a heartbeat. You should be at another church immediately. Because Jesus defends here his house of worship. Because that's where people need to go and be with God. And so that's what we find here. Jesus sees this house as this place of worship. Do you see church that way? Like in your own heart, do you look and say, that's my place of worship. That's where I go and I, I go before God. I strip away things and I, I just make the world be quiet for a little while so that I can just focus entirely on God to get renewed and refreshed and challenged and sent out. That's what Jesus is defending here. And he's angry because anyone that prevents people from coming and seeking and worshiping is a problem. Kent Hughes, the, the, the theologian, says this, our hearts can become like the outer courts of the temple of Jerusalem. You know what he's saying there? Sometimes like we can come and do holy things, worshipful things right here, right? But our hearts are like the outer courts, the commotion of the animals, and the money changers, and the cotton candy machines, and all that kind of stuff going, there wasn't really cotton candy in the Bible, but all that going on, that our hearts can be that way, where we kind of sit down here to worship, and it's like, okay, I hope this pastor gets this done quick, because as soon as he gets done, we're going to fly through that drive through we got to get to that game um, here, and then we're done, I got to get that on the stove, and I mean, we're just, we're racing in another direction already. I mean, we can even do it on petty things like, you know, why is she wearing that today? That's kind of looks little weird on her. You know, wh- whatever, all kinds of things. Jesus is defending his place of worship. And you know what he's asking you? When you come in, come in and worship. Come worship. Come strip away. Sometimes we think that means, you don't know, put all my problems at the door and don't. No, bring your problems in here and take them to the Lord in worship. But that's what we do here so here's what we find in this last section of the scripture. The Jewish leaders, they look at him and they go, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us the miraculous sign to prove it. It's interesting, like, like they don't rebuke the act. It's not like they're saying, you know, well, that's, that's sinful. That's against the law. What they're saying here is, is what are your qualifications for doing this? Telling us why you are able to do this. Just, just tell us. And they ask this. They say, "Will you show us a miraculous sign. A miraculous sign. Now, I don't know if this goes as a continuation from the wedding of Cana. Like if the word had already gotten out that he had just done this miracle or not. Remember, John's not so concerned with, with chronology. So we don't know for sure here. Um, but they asked for this miraculous sign. Because these miraculous signs were always, they were always a sign that this person was from the Father. Or they were a great prophet or something, right? That's why John includes these stories. Twice Jesus is asked by religious leaders. Like religious leaders come to him twice and say, hey, give us a sign. Just give us a sign. Do you know what he says the other time? This is one. You know what he says the other time to them? He says this. This is funny. He says, "Uh, yeah, I'll give you a sign. But first I want you to know that uh, um, asking for a sign is is actually a sign of, of an adulterous generation. Um, But let me tell you the sign. I mean, that's exactly what Jesus says. I'll give you a sign. You're an adulterous generation. Now let me tell you the sign. Uh, And he says this, As Jonah is three days in a fish, so will the Son of Man be three days in the earth. Like, that's the first time. And then this time he says almost the same thing. John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus says, all right, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Nearly the same words that he tells the religious leaders. He is talking about, as we know on the other side, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He's pointing, I think, like I, I like to picture Jesus standing there with him and like he's pointing to himself, like build, the, destroy this temple. Now, I, I don't know if he's actually doing that. The scripture doesn't say, so I don't, I don't want to, you know, sanctify imagination here. But he's saying, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build this up. That, that's what he's saying there. Can can I tell you this morning a key point, just on a side note, before we look at the the leader's response. Do you know that, like, your sign from Jesus is always his death and resurrection as well? It's always your sign from Jesus. His validation to you is that he died on the cross and he rose from the dead and he lives. That's his validation always to you. Here's the awesome thing. That's not all he has to offer you. The gospel in the New Testament tells us that he has life eternal that starts the moment you believe. Like the the verses we've talked about, I come that you might have life and have it to the full. Like that's what he has to offer you. Like when he talks about peace, joy, redemption, restoration, all that he has to offer you every single day. But his validation is always his death and resurrection. And that's what he is saying here to the religious leaders. Now, what do they say here? They say, well, what? They exclaimed, it took 46 years to build this temple and you can rebuild it in three days. And they're right Herod actually started rebuilding the temple in 19 BC after it was demolished in the Old Testament. So, 19 BC, he started building. It took him 10 years to complete that inner court that we were talking about. 10 years. But they continued to build all the way up to the day of Jesus, what you saw on the screen. They were building that, and it went all the way up, all the way to 68 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed, and it'd be taken out again. So, it was a long process. So, they were right. It took a long time to build. But of course, Jesus is not referring to the temple. He's referring to himself. Now, you're a believer, right? And you're contemplating as Jesus says this. You're a teenage believer, and Jesus is saying the temple, and he's pointing to himself, or he's he's calling himself this. And we get this great little passage here at the end, which I think brings us to a question of our own commitment. He says this, After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. It's like the disciples, they're hearing all that Jesus is saying. And we usually think you either believe or you don't believe. But the disciples, they're they're believing on a deeper and deeper level all the time. But these are hard things that Jesus is saying. These are very difficult for him to go, what what is he— What does Jesus mean? He's going to destroy the temple and build it back. What's he talking about? These are hard lessons for them to understand and to process and, and get. And so that's why the scripture actually says after he was raised from the dead, they remember this. They remember this encounter. And it's like their belief in Jesus, their commitment to him even kicks up a higher level than what we're seeing as they followed him. Because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's always the sign. That's always the validation. But what he has to offer us is so much more even on a daily basis. Hey, the last point here is notice what they say. This is what, this is what they come to believe, the, the disciples. They believe both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. Now, we don't have a problem with that because we have the New Testament. And some of your Bibles you're looking at right now, like they have red letters in them, right? Meaning Jesus actually said those. So you don't have any problem believing it. You're like, yeah, Jesus said it. I believe it. It's in the Scripture, right? It's the New Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. And now the, the disciples are declaring, and John is declaring, the words of Jesus are on par with Scripture. They're just as significant, the words of Jesus, can you imagine what this will release the disciples into their mission work, the, the book of Acts and beyond? The words of Jesus are just as valuable. How powerful for you are the words of Jesus? Like when you read God's word, how powerful are the words of Jesus? Like when he tells you, don't worry, don't worry. I mean, t- tomorrow's gonna enough worries out of his own. I mean, just don't, don't worry, but just take everything to God in prayer. How powerful are words like that that Jesus shares with you? When Jesus says, hey, go love your neighbor, just go do it, how powerful is that? When Jesus says, yeah, you were wronged, you were were gypped, you were wrong, how about turning the other cheek? Like, how powerful is that? The disciples are coming to understand how powerful Jesus' words, and they'll say, this is on par with Scripture. This is on par. Can I ask you, like, is Jesus' words on par or above just your own thinking? Like, instead of you saying, well, I think that I probably should, are Jesus' words even more powerful than that? The disciples have come to this point and this understanding. This final key point I want to tell you I think is the overarching thing of this passage, and it'll lead us into communion this morning, and that's this. Jesus paved the way for you to come to him. Like, he does everything he can to invite you to come to Jesus. Every once in a while, somebody says, I don't know if I want to invite them to church. They're not really church people. You know what Jesus is saying? Well, yeah, that's, bring them then, you know, because Jesus is saying, I paved the way. Anybody, come, come to him this morning. And so I want to lead you in communion this morning. And when we serve communion, really what we're doing, what we're simply doing is we're restating the validation The restatement of the validation is his death and resurrection. That's the the, the symbol of the elements that we serve and we partake in. But we're claiming much more than that. We're claiming that we're committed to the person of Jesus Christ. That we believe his promises of the life he has to offer. We accept the challenges that he says, be about this, now go and do my kingdom work. That's what communion validates for us. And so this morning, I want to invite you to come and receive. And if this morning, like for you, you're just like, wow, I'd, I, that's a new way of looking at it for me, and I, I wonder if I've been a stumbling block for some people around me to come and to serve and to worship and seek God. I wonder if I've been a stumbling block because I just, I'm petrified of ever engaging spiritual conversation with them, or because I've judged them a certain way, or because I've, I've kind of claimed, well, they have that lifestyle, so you know, they, they won't be close to God. Maybe this morning, just coming and surrendering that is enough for God to say, I'm going to start working in and through you now. Maybe this morning, uh, you would you would just say, um, you know, I, I need myself to just surrender some things. And you know what they are. We didn't even talk about them this morning. And maybe that's an opportunity just to come and to surrender before God. So I want to, this morning, invite you. We always invite you, but I just want to make a special a stronger invitation to say this morning when we serve communion, uh, we won't linger all through the afternoon, but enough time for sure for you. I just want to invite you to receive the elements, the body and blood of Christ, and, and then just, I love when you come to the altar. You get in a different posture, and you allow yourself to maybe hear from God and to speak to God a different way than you normally do sitting in a seat. It's not a requirement. You don't have to feel bad staying in your seat, but I want to invite you a special invitation to to maybe do a different posture this morning to hear from God. So let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I'm grateful that you're saying in your word today that there's times where it is good and proper for us to be angry. And this is a time to be angry. You show us when people are stifled from being able to come to know you, people that want to seek you and want to know you. They want to learn more about you. And Father, my prayer right now is if there be anybody sitting in here that needs to learn more about you, that they're here seeking, even if they haven't been able to define it that way, there would not be a single obstacle, nothing we've put out there, nothing they've put in their own head, no obstacle to coming before you in this last couple minutes of our worship service and just saying, hey, God, I'm, I'm Tom. I'm seeking you. Speak to me. Reveal to me who you are and what you have for my life if you've been a Christian a while and yet it's so far on the back burner <laughs> this type of stuff that this morning you would just renew and say God I'm, I'm sorry I've kind of been on a, kind of been a spiritual vacation from you here and I realize your word calls me up to a different level of engagement with you and connection and if that's you this morning just come receive communion this morning and claim it again make it more than just bread and juice this morning Father, we trust you and what you want to say to us, all of us. We pray in your son's name. Amen. We'll have four stations here. Please come and receive. You don't need to be a member here. Um, Just come. If you know the Lord is your savior, please come and receive. The table's prepared. Come and use this altar how you'd like.